We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. I'm on the air now. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. I think somebody hit a button there, and we ran the entry song a little bit too long, but that's okay. I'm coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. And you can reach us on the web at 860amtheanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com. Also, go to my website. I'm still working on it, but it's getting there, drbillradiomd.com. That's drbillradiomd.com. And you can click Listen Live or Join Me, and you'll hear the show from 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. We also have the podcast uh, archived, and you can click on the Archive button and pick up old shows. I don't know that we have them named or labeled, but we'll have to start working on that as well. Now, I was very curious to see how the president handled uh, NATO, and I wanted to talk about the military budget today a bit. But first, I wanted to say that I'm really, uh, I'm not ecstatic about the Supreme Court pick, but I'm pleased. He seems like he's a really good man, and he should fly through the uh, process of of being approved by the Senate without any problems. So I think that that's as important as having somebody who is conservative in there. And by the way, he's Catholic, so he's from the Catholic side of the family. So you know he's going to have uh, subjective feelings about uh, abortions on demand. And we talked about that at the lunch table this week. A lot of the doctors are okay with abortion now, but uh, it depends, too, on how you were raised and uh, what part of the world you come from. And I think people have have, uh, morphed, the society has morphed over the decades since Roe versus Wade. But I don't think that the basic morals and values have changed that much, and I I think it's just a matter of convincing people that, uh, that a human being is anything with the genetic ability to become a full-grown human being, and I think that's important. So we'll have to approach it from a genetic point of view. As you guys know, I'm not a real uh, religious kind of guy, and I think that a lot of our morals and values can be defined in terms of uh, straightforward, logical thinking. I mean, a lot of the things that we have taboos on make sense medically and scientifically as well. Uh, 
it just that we didn't know why in years past, but now we do. We understand things. Does that lessen God's role in your life? Uh, I don't think so. I think that if you believe in God, that you're going to have uh, some innate sense of ethics and morals. And as I've said to people repeatedly over the years, uh, would you change your life if you found out tomorrow that there was no God? Would you do anything different? Would you alter your life? Now, one of the guys at the lunch table said, yeah, I probably would. Then I said, you need to keep going to temple or church or whatever. You need to hang on to those beliefs because they act as a beacon. Now, if you have a a moral code and an ethical code that you live by, and it's unwavering, and it's not going to change no matter what the times are or what the which God is in and which God is out, then you probably have an inner sense of uh, spirituality that most people don't have, and more power to you. Well, at any rate, I'm fine with the pick. So the court basically is Catholic and Jewish, the Supreme Court. So I got both sides of the family represented. Of course, the Jewish side is more liberal. Uh, the By the way, Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed by President Trump earlier in the year, or was it two years ago already? I, I'm losing track of time because this guy's presidency is just flying by. It was last year, that's right. He, uh, he was a Catholic. He was raised Catholic, but I think he converted to or joined the Episcopal Anglican Church when he went overseas to study in Great Britain, uh, which is fine. I mean, that's just Catholic light. But it's good to have both sides of the family running the court. We just got to convince them of the right things to do when it comes to our constitutional rights and the powers of the federal government. So that's my big spiel on the Supreme Court. You got it. But now I want to talk about NATO. Now, it's interesting to me, and Joe and I were talking before the show about the way the president approaches a lot of problems. He comes in much like... uh, a labor management dispute situation where management comes in and says, we're not giving you one dime, and labor says, we won't settle for anything less than a dollar raise. And they beat their fist on the table, and they storm out. And then they come back in, all right, we'll go 10 cents, and then labor says 90 cents, and they work on it and fuss and fume, and finally they get to 50 cents, which is probably where everybody wanted to be anyway but we have to justify all these arbitrators and all these agents and all these lawyers who are involved in all of these negotiations because they certainly got to eat and buy cars and feed their kids. So it's kind of a a uh, semi-created bureaucracy that we instill and install when we do go into negotiations. So the president, he comes from basically from a, a contractor's background and I don't know how many of you have ever had to deal with contractors and subcontractors, but it's not an easy task. Now, I've rebuilt one condemned house, and I've built the house that I'm in now. I've remodeled offices, and I've done work on probably a half a dozen other houses over the years. So I have more experience than most in this area, and it's not easy. It's not easy when you're dealing with subcontractors, and you've got to sift through a lot of people before you find people – find someone who is reliable, who is uh, affordable, and who you can work with. And it, it's it's not an easy task, and there's some yelling and screaming that goes on. I mean, I've had to chase people off of the property who wanted to do work for me, 
uh, and were getting kind of pushy about it. And I had a pistol in my pocket, too. And I said, get off my property or I'm going to shoot your ass. And, of course, I wouldn't have done that. But uh, there are times when you got to get tough. And I think that with NATO, especially with Germany, because I think Germany's probably the biggest offender of all the European countries. I mean, this is the largest economy in the European Union. And uh, I don't think they're pulling their weight like they should. I think that Merkel is trying to walk that tightrope between guns and butter and keep their economy up. And I also think that they do have an unfair advantage in the automobile sales. So there's a number of reasons why the president would want to go after Germany, especially in NATO spending. And, you know, we need to look at who's spending money, who who has the largest outlays. Now, this is important because not only is there a 2% uh, tax on uh, GDP for the operation of NATO and the arming and the maintenance of it, but there's also the offer of non two percent items into the military uh, uh, pot that NATO keeps in order to maintain its activities throughout the world, whether it's in Afghanistan or whether it's on the Ukrainian border. So the countries have the ability voluntarily to put more into the pot, either by way of men or uh, armaments or planes, different things that they can do. And I I think that what the president is saying is that Germany has the ability to do a lot more than it is doing. So we need to, we need to keep pushing them, but the top 15 military budgets, and I'll give it to you in rank. uh, Let's start at the top. Of course, we're number one and behind us is China and then Saudi Arabia. Surprisingly, they spent 69.4 billion China, 228 billion, and we're about 610 billion this year. There's some discretionary funds there as well that Congress has voted the president, and we're we're averaging around 20 percent of our of our budget for military. And people say, "Well, Doctor Bill, why don't we put this into social programs? Why don't we put it into health care? Why don't we uh, shore up Social Security and all these other items?" And what I say to them is. Listen, uh, Medicare is great. I'm all for that because then I'll get paid more, hopefully. And medicine is one uh, social program, entitlement program that does create more business and more jobs because doctors and nurses are then in greater need. And there's ancillary staff and nursing assistants and MAs and X-ray and all the other things that go into making up our health care system. So I don't think that's a bad thing to put money into the health care system. How we do it, now that's that's the big thing. Uh, do we have giveaway programs? Do we have universal health care? It's, it's not in our national psyche. Now that may change over the years, but it's at this point it's not in our national psyche. But now if we spend $610 billion and say we spend another $500 billion on Medicare and health care items, and by the way, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security are still over 50% of the total federal budget. So it's not like we're not spending money on it. So if we have $610 billion that we put into the military, what are we getting? Well, we're creating jobs. We have a million-plus man army, and all those people are working, and they're not just sitting around doing 
doing nothing. They're actually uh, performing tasks and learning trades and uh, learning self-discipline. And all these things are important. In addition, we're building military hardware. There's innovation as well as manufacturing and production. And we're also selling our military hardware around the world. The F-35, which is one of the latest fighter jets, I believe has been sold to 30 or 35 different nations and a number of nations that are integral to our uh, coterie of, of friends and allies have the opportunity to develop and manufacture parts of this airplane, the F-35, and also each country that is involved in the manufacture of parts also has the ability, and they're expected to, receive the plane in pieces and put it together. So we're not only selling hardware, but we're also creating more jobs in other countries. And I think that this is a good thing. And you say, well, why do we have to do it with items of war? Well, you know, as President Washington said, and I've said this many times, the best way to maintain the peace is to maintain a strong military. I paraphrase that, but you've got the idea. Probably Alexander Hamilton wrote that. But nevertheless, I think it's important, and I agree with the president on this, that a strong military is our best deterrent to future wars. That's the one thing that Hitler looked at in the early and the mid and late 30s was that the rest of the world was not ramping up their armament manufacturing and production and they were not working on their armies and navies and air forces the way that the Germans were. And he said, well, this is a great opportunity. And he also looked at at the Russians and he knew that Stalin had killed off a number of his uh, field-grade officers in the purges that went on during the 1920s and 30s in Russia. And he said, this is a good time to attack because they don't have anybody to lead them. All their officers have been killed. So I think it's important that we stop and remember our history and say, yeah, $610 billion, 20% of our budget, that's a big number. But let's look at how many jobs it creates, how much uh, sales there are and income that comes into the country by selling armaments uh, to other countries, how it cements our relationships with our allies and our friends and how it continues to keep us on the top of the heap. There's really nobody that's even close to us in terms of capabilities. And you say, well, does that mean we, we cannot be defeated? No. It means that you'll think twice before trying to take us on. You know, if you're the biggest kid on the block, you don't necessarily have to go out and pick a fight with anybody, although once every five or ten years just to let them know that you're still the biggest kid on the block may not hurt. However, if you're China and you're spending $228 billion and we're spending $610 billion, then you're going to say to yourself, hmm, I wonder if these guys are better armed than we are. Are we going to be able to take them on? And there's, of course, there's hidden expenditures in every country. So the Chinese have a paramilitary, kind of like a National Guard, and they don't necessarily count that in their budget. But even at that, they're not spending half of what we are. You say, well, things are costlier here. I think that the high tech that the Chinese pay for is probably costing them about the same as what we're paying for it because they're still dependent on South Korea and Japan for a lot of their high tech uh, innovations and armaments. But the real surprise here is Saudi Arabia. And this is uh, 
this is really encouraging to me because it says that the Sauds are taking a real interest in maintaining uh, peace and security in the Middle East and encountering the Iranian threat. Uh, and I think that they are an ally, and they're now allied with Israel. So that's a good thing. We've got a good thing. The Russians are not far behind at $66 billion. They're still struggling economically. India at $63 billion because they're sitting on the border with Pakistan and China, two traditional enemies. France at 57.8. The United Kingdom at 47. Japan, $45 billion. Germany, $44 billion. And so here's the rub. You've got two smaller economies in the European Union. You've got France and Great Britain that are spending more on military and armaments than Germany is. And Germany is a much bigger economy. It's probably the fifth biggest economy now. I think it's going to be the United States, Russia, not Russia, China, Japan, and Germany. Uh, We're all up there. Germany and Japan are nowhere close to China and the United States. However, if you take the whole European Union, then then we're having uh, about an equal match there. South Korea spends a lot of money, $39 billion. That's a lot of money for a little country like South Korea. There are only 60 million people, and you know they're a postage stamp of a country. But we understand that, and we uh, are integral in their military. And, and that's necessary. We have to do that because there's a tremendous threat from North Korea, both to our friend and ally, South Korea, as well as to us and to other countries in the region. Then Brazil comes behind Italy. And then Italy spends a lot of money, $29 billion. That's not bad. Australia, $27 billion. And Canada's up there with $20 billion. I love the Canadians. They think they are the pacifist of the North Americas. You know, they... But they don't have any idea, most of them, what they're, what they're spending on the military, and that they're also one of the largest exporters of, of military hardware, hardware they sell overseas. And then the bottom of the 15 is Turkey, and they're spending about $18 billion. And Turkey is ostensibly an ally. They're still part of NATO. And they have fought with us in a number of, of conflicts over the past uh, 60 to 70, 80 years. And so have a, a number of other countries, including the Canadians. And, and all this bodes, I think, well for our relationships with countries around the world because they look to us and say, you know what? They're really putting out a big effort, and they're not just doing it for themselves. They're doing it for all of us, for the NATO allies, for the Pacific allies that we have to maintain peace and order, to check the Russians who always want to rule Europe, and to remind the Germans that if they try to rule Europe again, uh, we can quickly step in and, and crush them, and we should. But at this point, the Germans need to ante up. And I think that that's the main thrust of what the president's trying to do with the uh, NATO negotiations. Now, he says he's got commitments from everybody to come up to the 2% level or whatever level it is that we're we're, uh, targeting. And that's great. I don't have a problem with that. They're going to have a few years to get up and ramp up to that speed. But I think the, the thing is, is the Germans could probably do it right away. They may have to cut into their social spending a little bit. Uh, but, you know, come on make a little sacrifice here. It's not not like we're asking you to fork over $500 billion. You know, we're probably talking $20, $30 billion more. Cough up. I mean, that's not a lot of money for uh, 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 an economy the size of the Germans. 
So I think it's important that we continue to put pressure on our NATO allies and to get them to pony pony up what what they should. Now, who exports military goods? Uh, weapon sales. So you want to know who the largest exporters are? Number 10 is the Netherlands. <laughs> that little country is accounting for 2.1% of all exports of military hardware. Italy is number nine. Israel is number eight. Spain is number seven. Spain, who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk Spain is number seven in the exporting of military hardware? The United Kingdom is number six. China is number five. Germany is number four. So Germany is making good money off of selling their military hardware that they manufacture. Hey, kick some of that back into the pot, guys. You know, your your ability to do that has in large part been because of what we, the allies, have done for you to help you get to this point in, in your development post-World War II. So Germany accounts for 5.8%. France is number three. Russia is number two. And we're number one. We're number one. We're selling, let me see how much we're selling, 22% of all the sales. So we're selling hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, of hardware overseas that we manufacture largely here in the United States and in cooperation with uh, many of our allies. So this is a big industry. This is a huge industry. It's a huge industry because it's a necessary industry in order to maintain peace around the world. And if you look at it, the death from all wars has been falling dramatically since World War II. And that's not by accident. It's just as the murder rate has been falling since records were kept in the late Middle Ages. The murder rate continues to fall decade by decade and century by century. And that even includes, if you draw a line through the graph, the murders by terrorists over the eons. So things are improving. And if somebody says to you, oh, the world's going to hell in a handcart, and look at this, we're in wars here and there, and look at all the money we're spending on the military, and we're neglecting our domestic duties and responsibilities, you tell them, hey, you know, deaths by wars have been falling dramatically since World War II. And so has the murder rate. All violent crime has been going down. This is no accident. This is no accident because we learned over the eons, over the centuries, that the best way to have a good neighbor is to have a good fence. You know, I know you like my dog, but I'm sure you don't want him in your yard pooping. So I'll keep him in my yard, and I'd appreciate it if you'd do the same. And that doesn't mean I don't love you, and I don't love your doggies. It just means that we both have separate responsibilities that we have to take care of. Now, there are mutual responsibilities. We all have to think about chipping in when we need to repave the streets or put up new lampposts, and that's the common pot that we kick into for not only for the, uh, the entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, but all for, also for the military. This is important. And you say, well, where the heck is all this money going? Well, as you can imagine, the biggest expenditures are for mission support activities, followed by aircraft and aircraft-related systems, and then shipbuilding and maritime systems. And you say, well, 
what are the big costs? Well, it costs over $10 billion now to build a, a, an aircraft carrier, over $10 billion. So if you build a couple of aircraft carriers a decade, and by the way, we have the largest fleet of aircraft carriers and all other ships, then you're going to be spending $20 billion right away. And with inflation, it's probably going to be $30 billion by the time you get to cost overrides. And why do we have all these cost overrides? Well, you know the technology is changing so fast. The computer you bought 10 years ago is not going to be able to run the programs, nor is it going to have the memory and the storage space that today's computers have or to run the programs that we have today. So that's the same with the military. They build a ship, and they started 10 years ago, and it may take them five or 10 years to build a huge aircraft carrier. Then they have to go back and refit a lot of the technology that has changed, both hardware and software. There's uh, missile guidance systems. There's navigational systems. There's radar jamming. There's uh, tactical systems. There's all kinds of things that have to be uh, updated as we go along, and the president is 100% right. You can't just purchase an aircraft carrier and have it built over a five to ten year period and think that by the end of that period it's going to be what you need it's not you got to go back and retrofit it because things are changing so rapidly and you know i've touted this in medicine the biologics that are coming out are i mean they're unbelievable really that we can control uh, a multitude of diseases like uh, inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis and a whole host of problems that we can cure uh, cancers that used to be uh, uniformly fatal, like melanomas. Our only treatment for centuries was to cut them out. And if you, another one popped up, and of course, before the age of CT scanners and MRIs, we didn't know when they popped up until it was too late, until you had a brain tumor that had metastasized from a skin lesion that was a melanoma. And I had a melanoma removed from my uh, right shoulder, and that that's uh, that's a scary thing. But now there's a subset of people with melanoma. The genetic makeup of the cells makes it amenable to one of the biologics that has been developed, and it can cure malignant melanoma. And this has just been within the past five or ten years that this has come out. It, it's really moving so fast that it's almost unbelievable and it's difficult to keep up with all this so we have to go back and refit all of these ships and the aircrafts as well you know the f-35 raptors have been refitted and updated as have the f-22s the f-22 raptor we're not selling overseas as, as far as i know we may be selling it to some of our closest allies like great britain but uh, i think that that has so much technology and is such an advanced fighter plane that uh, we're holding on to that. However, since these things take decades to develop and five years to build, by the time you get the finished product, you already have to upgrade and update. And some of that is good because a lot of the instrumentation that weighed so much in airplanes 40 or 50 years ago is now replaced by lightweight computers and printed circuit boards. So the weight of the planes is relative to the uh, necessary avionics that you need to navigate and talk with the towers and onboard radar and all that uh, has dramatically decreased. And so there's more room for pilot weapons, bigger motors, uh, new defense systems. And so all this changes. So if you 
redo your electronics at the end of the five-year build period because things have changed so rapidly. It's going to cost you money, but it's going to give you a better product too. So the big expenses are for the aircraft and the related systems, and I think the F-35 Raptor is probably 150 to 200 million, and the F-22 is well over 200 million now. We're looking at aircraft carriers that are going to cost over 10 billion, and they're big, big plants, they're big factories, they're big floating air bases, and of course mission support. And I saw an article where one of the liberal uh, websites was criticizing us for spending what they estimated to be $17,500 to outfit one army soldier. Someone else came along and said, oh, come on, it's not that much. You can get, a, you can get an M16 for 500 to to 1000 bucks if you buy them in bulk. Well, you know, to have the best weapon, and I bought uh, an assault rifle years ago. I bought a, uh, a 5.56, which can also handle a .223 shell. And it's a semi-automatic because there's no automatics that are allowed to be sold without special permits from the uh, uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Division of, of, I think that's the Secret Service. So you have to have that in order to get an automatic weapon, and it's, you have to apply for it, and it takes about a year to get clearance. Now, if you look at the weapon that I bought, and this must have been 10 years ago, it, it's a really nice gun, even... One of the ex-Marine buddies I hang out with and go shooting with occasionally, uh, he said, that's a nice gun. Now, you take a $2,500 gun and you put a, a good scope on it, a night vision scope, you're already over $1,000 there for a night vision scope. And then you have a laser on there. Uh, and then you have to have interchangeable barrels. So it has to be something you can take apart and put back together in a hurry. And you have all of the accoutrements that go with uh, a high-powered weapon like that, you're going to be talking way more than $1,000. Then you think about the body armor we're using now. I mean, it's lightweight. It's made up of clay uh, and, you know, artificially made products and, and carbon. And these are expensive jackets to make. I think a... a a bulletproof jacket that was on sale at Sam's Club a decade ago is still going for several hundred dollars. So, you know, these things are going to cost a couple of grand. The helmets are not cheap. They're high tech. I mean, everything that goes into the uh, arming of a soldier is pretty high tech, at least on our side of the of the equation. And is it 17500 I don't think so, but I wouldn't be surprised if it costs eight to ten grand to outfit one soldier. Now, remember, that's a soldier who's on the front lines and in battle. That does not include the support people behind him. And we think about weapon systems, and we think immediately about an aircraft carrier or a destroyer that has missiles on it or these uh, high-tech fighter jets like the F-22 and the F-35. But we don't think about the cargo ships and the cargo planes and the medical support and the food and armament support and the people behind the scenes who are maintaining the aircrafts and fixing the the uh, ships and building all the things that need to be built in order to uh, maintain our military in an up-to-date fashion. 
when we come back, I want you to give me a call and tell me what you think. Should we or should we not be spending this kind of money on our military? And if not, what should we spend it on? I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877 969 8600. Give me a call after the break. I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill. You think you got the best of me. Think you've had the last laugh. Bet you think that everything good is gone. Think you left me broken down. Think that I'll come on and back. Maybe you don't know me because you're dead wrong. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. The Israeli military has lifted its restrictions along the Gaza border area today, indicating it has accepted an Egyptian-mediated ceasefire to end an intense 24-hour round of fighting with Hamas terrorists. The military had shut down a popular beach and placed limitations on gatherings of large crowds. President Trump said something might be good that's coming out of the summit tomorrow with Russian President Vladimir Putin, but he has very low expectations for it. Mr. Trump says in a TV interview he's going into the meeting with his mind open, but isn't expecting a whole lot from Putin, but perhaps a happy exchange between the two superpower leaders at the least. And British Prime Minister Theresa May says President Trump has advised her to sue the European Union to resolve negotiations over Britain's exit from the bloc. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments, so call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. All right, folks, this is your last chance to get that free book on calcium and try Dr. Pincus's CalMax formula absolutely risk-free. Here's the special toll-free number to call. It's 1-800-827-1109. As we've been talking about, CalMax is a very unique blend of calcium and magnesium that gets absorbed into your bloodstream so you can replenish those vital nutrients that your body burns up when you experience stress. And remember, Dr. Pincus has arranged a very special offer here. It's only available to you listeners, so when you call, be sure to mention this program to get that risk-free trial of CalMax. Again, this is only available to you listeners and only if you call this special toll-free number. It's 1-800-827-1109. Plus, if you're one of the first 100 callers, you'll get an extra free supply with your order. So all you have to do is pick up the phone and call one 800 827-1109. Thank you for making my dream a reality and publishing my very first book. Karen Notner is author of Is Jesus Your Pearl? You encouraged me, you laughed with me, and you held my hand through the entire process. Karen's publisher is Zulon Press. 
Do you dream about publishing? Make the dream real with America's fastest-growing Christian book publisher. Your free publishing guide is waiting at ChristianPublishing.com. Thank you so much to all the wonderful professionals at Zulon Press. Visit Zulon Press at ChristianPublishing.com. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Today we'll have clouds and sunshine with a thunderstorm in a couple of spots this afternoon and a high of 93. Look for thunderstorm in spots this evening, otherwise partly cloudy tonight with a low of 80. Then tomorrow we'll have a mix of clouds and sunshine with a shower thunderstorm in spots in the afternoon. High on Monday, 91. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM860, The Answer. See what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I'm back, little Kelly Clarkston. I think she was one of the early American Idol winners, and she's singing about what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. So we're talking tough this morning. We've got a call from Roseanne in Clearwater, and she wants to talk about the uh, abortion uh, topic. So, Roseanne, are you there? I'm here. Yes, I am here. Um, yeah, it's just uh, things that I've always wondered about. Like, they never show an abortion, how horrible it is. Uh, we did have a nurse about five years ago in church talking about it. She said it was so horrific. She'd never want to witness it again. The little hands were in such were in such pain. And we have hardcore criminals that we worry about not to not to have them go through any pain when they we have to euthanize them. But we do this to little babies. If we have to do it, they should do it humanely. Yeah, I think that that's that's a selling point. And Dr. Nathanson, who was uh, a physician, an OBGYN in the 1950s, and he helped lead the uh, abortion movement, uh, he actually changed his tune when the ultrasound came out because in the 70s, now all of a sudden we can see the babies developing in the uterus. And uh, so he said, "Wait a minute! I mean, this is a this is a living being. I mean, it's a it's a a functional growing being, and it has feelings, and it moves around, and it sucks its thumb, and all these other things that babies do in the in the womb." And so he changed his tune. He actually converted to Catholicism and wrote a book condemning all of the things that had been said and done in the 1950s and 60s in order to uh, uh, win the quote quote abortion argument for abortions on demand. And I think that uh, he realized that this is this is a living being, and it's I don't care if you believe in God or not. There's there's a moral and ethic dilemma that comes with with uh, Taking something, taking a life, I don't care what it is, human, dog, cat, you know, I'm, I'm kind of morphing into into a militant Buddhist as I get older. But at any rate, I, I agree with you. It's a terrible thing. And uh, even a first trimester abortion, you're still taking a living being out. You're still taking a living being out. Now, I think that late-stage abortions have pretty much been curtailed except for uh, uh, life and death situations for the mother. Now, one of my friends said to me years ago, he said, how can you be against abortion bill, abortion on demand, uh, but you don't have a problem with capital punishment? I said, well, the people that are receiving the, the sentences of capital punishment, first of all, 
they flunked the test of life. They have been given the test of life and they flunked it. Now, a baby in utero, an embryo or a fetus, has not been given the test of life. They haven't had that chance yet. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, that, that to me is a big difference. And that doesn't mean I'm for the death penalty or against it. I just am for whatever is the least expensive, most expedient way to take care of it. And my limited research says that uh, the death sentence uh, saves the state about four or five million dollars per person that, who is uh, put to death. And I agree with you, it doesn't make any sense to have uh, late stage abortions or even early stage abortions without some kind of uh, uh, anesthetic for the baby. Exactly. I mean, I don't think we should be doing them, but if we do do them, let's, let's at least do them humanely. I, I think that on, on-demand abortions are, are inherently wrong. They don't make any sense. It's just another way of outsourcing another, another industry. So instead of having our own babies, uh, we're importing babies from Central and, and America, from Central America and from Mexico. This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't get it. But now, there, listen, there's two sides to this argument, though, because there's a guy that wrote a book called Freakonomics. It's a fascinating book. And he argues, and of course, there's not proof for this per se, but at least statistically in his lifetime, he argues that abortions have lowered the crime rate because most of the people who are getting abortions are teenagers from what he could see. And that the teenage mothers are the mothers who haven't had the experience, and these are the ones that produce the uh, sociopaths and the personality disorders because they're they're not mature enough to handle it, and they're also impulsive, and that's why they get pregnant, and so they have predisposition to to impart their personality problems to their children. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but I think we have to look at all of this and take into account all aspects of the argument. One of the guys at the lunch table, uh, Roseanne, said to me the other day, they said, well, I believe a woman has a right to do what she wants with her body. And one of them said to me, don't you think that women should have a right to do what they want with their body? And I said, none of us have a right to do absolutely with what we want with our body. We're herd animals. If we go to war and the government says, Bill, we're out of doctors, we don't care that you're almost 70, you got to come and, and help us fight this war by taking care of our wounded soldiers. I don't have a choice for that. It's either that or jail. So the guys have their responsibilities. The gals have their responsibilities. But I'll tell you this. I think that in 100 years, with this, if we continue to develop our medical and technological expertise and abilities the way we're doing, I think in 100 years, this is going to be a, a, a non-debate. You know, things will be so advanced that you'll be able to turn on your ovaries and turn them off uh, depending on when you want a kid. And time. I'm, go ahead. I'm why, sorry. Go ahead. Why do these babies have to suffer and in pain to, when these doctors perform these abortions? That you know, I'm not for it. But if if it, it is it is legal, then they must they should take that baby like a cesarean and euthanize and give it a needle like we do these the worst criminals around. That's all. Oh, great. They should show film and let people see what what's going on with an abortion being performed. Well, you know, I mean, we can't change the laws, but they're taking twenty months. You look in the yellow pages, twenty month, uh, twenty month babies aborted. Yeah, it's not right. I agree with you. Oh, um, horrible. And what we're 
I don't even understand why they, it's allowed for them to perform the way they do. I don't understand. Well, I think a lot of this uh, on the left, it's, it's emotional. And as I've said over and over and over again, uh, that Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and uh, in their two books that they wrote, they said that it doesn't matter how you get to communism, socialist state. What matters is that you get there. And this is what we in the West have had a problem with from the first that we've heard that we heard of this back in the uh, 19th century is that the end justifies the means. And this is uh, an immorality in the Judeo-Christian world. The means has to uh, have ethics and morals and values attached to it to get to the end that you want. And I think that this is part of the problem. So the left has lost sight of that fact that the end does not justify the means. The means in and of themselves have to have some inherent ethics and morals. They have to. I mean, otherwise, you're going to have a society that is just robots that, you know, everybody does what whatever they're told, because that's how you get to the end point, which is a, a communist socialist state where the Clintons are in charge. And none of us want that. I mean, even the people on the left, if they stop and think about it, you know, they're going to say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And they say, well, the evil that the right does outweighs the evil that I do. And I don't know what happened to that old maxim of two wrongs don't make a right. But I, I don't know. Joe, do you know what happened? Where'd that go? I thought that that was uh, something that we taught all of our kids. Has that gone out the window? Well, Wrote- yeah, yeah, yeah. To some degree it has. But, I mean, it's also it's, it, it's not that people don't have those values. It's that the people that have those values are drowned out by the what is the quote-unquote popular culture around them. Well, it's the noisy culture. Right. I'm I'm not sure how popular it is because I'm not sure that the numbers are as great as one would think. I mean, if you've got 10 people yelling at at uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders or at uh, a senator uh, like Mitch McConnell, you know, 10 people yelling with a microphone from the press close up is going to sound like 100 people. And, you know, one of the great things that I discovered is I journeyed through my love of music in the in the youth and uh, middle ages of, of this old man is that a lot of the harmony in the background that sounded like a whole chorus, it was three people. It was three people. You know, I was I was amazed that they could sound like that. But, you know, it doesn't take many people to sound like a big crowd. So I don't know how how big it is or how. uh much of a movement it is, but it's vocal. And that that in and of itself is, is a problem. And I, and I think that a lot of the uh, radio show hosts on, on the conservative stations are trying to counter that, which is good. I don't have a problem with it. That's not necessarily my style, but I understand the necessity of it. And uh, I think that we have to remember that, like you said before the show when we were talking about polls, Joe, that the polls really don't reflect the reality of the situation. And there was a pollster from uh, the University of Virginia, and he's a frequent uh, talk host or a talk uh, guest on a lot of the shows like Fox uh, in the morning and, and uh, different news agencies. And he said, you have to add an extra 10 points to the Republican side of the equation because Republicans won't answer the polls. And I think that's true. I mean, I, sitting at the lunch table with the guys who are conservative and are Republicans, they all say the same thing. The pollster calls me and I hang up. I'm not interested. I'm not telling them what I think. 
I will not do it. It's none of their business. And I think that the polls try rather than to tell us where we're at to, as Joe said before the show, they try to lead the the, uh, election and lead the voters. As as opposed to reflecting the position. They're trying to shape it. They're trying to shape it instead of reflecting the reality of the situation. So, you know, Joe, I I think you're right in that respect, but I don't think that the movement is as big as it is, and I I think that it's just a lot noisier. So so we need to to think about this as we go along. I think the abortion issue is important, and it will come up. It will come up. I have no doubt that now that the court is – uh, solidly or will solidly be conservative, that it will come up. Now, this won't end the, the abortions, uh, by the way, Roseanne. It's not going to stop abortions because the states are the ones who had uh, abortion laws. And I know this. I know this because in Kentucky growing up, we did not have abortion. It was outlawed, but New York did. And I had a family member with some major psychiatric problems, and it, it would not have been fair to society or the child. And early on, I went up to New York City. And uh, even though I was raised Catholic and I had strong moral feelings about it, uh, you know, I was also scientific and I knew that this was not going to work and that this would be an abused child and this would be a mother who couldn't handle it. And the opportunity for uh, adoption was not there. So but but my point was that if they are going to perform the abortion, that they should do it with the little baby doesn't feel all this pain. Well, I agree with that. And, sure. you know, that's something that we can easily do. I mean, you can do an in utero injection of the child and, and anesthetize an them. That's, that's easy to do. Or you can do a cesarean section if it's a late-term pregnancy. But why don't they do it? Why shouldn't well, they worry? Well, I, I think that there are uh, a lot of very ethical and moral OBs who say that they don't believe in abortion and they definitely don't believe in late-term abortions. So these go to the few people that are doing them, and it's not a great number of doctors that do this. And uh, they're mostly done in outpatient settings, and they're not necessarily set up for the kind of uh, anesthesia and equipment that would be necessary to do a cesarean section. So it's it's cost and expediency that, that it's not done. But I agree with you. We should... We should do this, and I think that would be a great cause uh, to bring before the courts that this is inflicting harm and it's painful to a living being, and yeah. that it's it's inhumane and it's you know it's cruel and unusual. And I think that's a wonderful argument, and I, I, I like that, and I think we should push that. And next time I talk about the abortion issue, I'm going to bring it up, Please. and I think and I think you need to bring it up with your friends and write your congressman, write write your state level. People and, and let them know. It show films of what people don't even know. They don't even know what goes on on an abortion procedure. They You're right, Rosie. And listen, I got Ian and Clearwater wants to uh, okay. jump in. And thanks for calling, honey. We'll we'll talk with you later. Ian, what's up? Yeah, I just want to make a few comments. And I'm all, first of all, you got a great show. And the abortion issue, you're touching on where I wanted to go. I want to say I believe it should be legal. It should be safe and rare. I hate to paraphrase Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, rape, incest, life in a mother, and a few limited circumstances. I want to know why can't we go back to the, the old system, the modified system, where we had state or church-supported orphanages. I can understand a woman doesn't want to have her baby, but 
why kill it? Well, let's pay her some money to carry the baby through and then put it up for adoption. I think we need to move back to that system. And then my last comment is, I think through osmosis through the years, the left has discovered abortion is going to – they're using it as social engineering. And you touched on it when you made your comments about we don't want to have babies anymore. We want to import them. That's why they don't want to give it up. Whatever utility this has for women's rights and their, their right to control their own body has been lost because they stumbled on something for population control and social engineering and population replacement. And nobody wants to go there, and you briefly touched on it. So that's my comments, and thanks for taking my call. Thank you, sir. We enjoy having you. Um, i got to tell you that <clears throat> it's the uh, – you know, both the Jewish and now the Catholic side of the family that have been integral in pushing this, our bodies, ourselves for women. And, you know, there were problems. I, I admit that, that the women were not being treated equally uh, when it came to health care as the men. And, and I've seen that in cardiology, where now we are more aware of the higher incidence of heart disease in women than we, than we thought before, because women present atypically. They don't present like the typical guy with chest pain and shortness of breath. Uh, when they're having uh, decreased blood flow to their heart because they've got blocked arteries. So we have different triggers and mechanisms now. And then, you know, things take time. I mean, the, the, the technology is changing. And as I said, in 100 years, I think the, this abortion debates, gonna, people will look back and say, I don't know what they were fighting about. But I agree with you 100% that we have that ability to provide for these kids. And it's certainly... Uh, uh, worthwhile trying this experiment of paying women to carry the babies to term. Now, listen, not all the abortions are teenagers. There's a big bump when you get into the better educated uh, 25, 30, 35-year-olds who get pregnant. Uh, but the majority, I would say, are teenage pregnancies. And I think that if we allow these women to uh, help them in some way to carry the babies till term and either put them up for adoption or uh, open up orphanages again. The the Catholic Church and I know the uh, Jewish congregations all had uh, support for the orphanages uh, and they were great things. They were great things. By the way, we played uh, when I was in seventh grade or eighth grade, I can't remember, we were playing St. Joe's Orphanage in Louisville and uh, I guess I thought it was uh, ice hockey or soccer because one kid got away on a fast break and I caught up with him and pushed him and knocked him down. And the, the nun who was the coach of the team and also the, the mommy figure, she jumped up and she started heading out to, to beat the crap out of me. <laughs> they had to restrain her and they threw me out of the game, rightfully so, because uh, it was an intentional foul and you're not supposed to do that. That's, that was a bad boy. Hey, but he didn't, he didn't make the, the basket, he didn't get the point. They beat the crap out of us anyway. But, uh, you know, I think the orphanages are, are a good thing, and it's an opportunity for uh, women who don't have the desire to have their own babies or who are unable to have their own babies that they can uh, be involved and work at an orphanage and help raise these kids. And, uh, you know, you can say that the, that the priesthood and the nunnery with their celibacy, that they were probably not the best thing for society. I don't know. I don't know. I think that it's possible that it offered an avenue of, of functioning, an outlet, 
and all these things will be sought in other areas. I mean, you know, th- this is not new in society, but those options were there, and I don't see why we shouldn't bring those back. I think that's a good idea that Ian had. I think that adoption and orphanages are two, two wonderful ways of, of, of assisting in the abortion issue. And, and as people on the right, we should be the ones who are pushing this. We should be the ones who are pushing this. So you got a good idea? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's pick that up and let's banter that about and see if we can get some support for that. It's been a great show. Appreciate everybody calling in. Love you guys. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Joe, have a good weekend, buddy. You too, brother. I'm out of here.